This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong and on This Working Life, the right to disconnect and how it sits with the concepts of trust and flexibility at work. Are you enjoying the flexibility of working from home, being able to organise your work time to suit your circadian rhythms, family responsibilities and health? But with this flexibility and freedom, has there been an erosion of the concept of a workday? What boundaries should there be in law or in your employment agreement? One global movement that is gaining traction in Australia is the right to disconnect. Ian Neil SC is a barrister specialising in employment law. What made you interested in the right to disconnect? The right to disconnect is a manifestation of a a profound systemic change that we're experiencing now in the way that work is performed, in the way that work is organised and in the way that work is regulated. It's emblematic of those systemic changes. The right not to engage in work-related communications such as emails, telephone calls, video calls, the sending and, and responding to messages and so on so as to be free from the performance of work. It's been an issue in countries like France, Germany, Italy, Canada now for several years, and it is coming to Australia as well. What is happening in those countries like France, Germany and Italy? Well, France is really the the country to, to which everyone turns when talking about this because it was there that the idea first emerged as long ago as 2001, a decision in the Labour Chamber of the French Supreme Court decided that employees are under no obligation to accept working at home or to bring their files and working materials home with them. And in 2004, the Supreme Court in France translated that principle to the kind of communications we're talking about now and held that the fact that employees were not reachable on their mobile phones outside working hours couldn't be considered as misconduct. As an employment lawyer, are those rights in France seen as a success? They're certainly seen as a success in that country and they've spread. They've spread to countries like Germany and Italy and into Canada. The province of Ontario recently enacted legislation, the Working for Workers Act, which required most employers to define expectations around disconnecting from work and required those employers to implement policies that protected that right. That sort of approach has been influential, well, certainly in many jurisdictions in in Europe, and it's the kind of approach which is entering Australian law, Australian employment law. What do you want to happen in Australia? There's a growing issue about the misalignment of expectations between employers and employees in this area. That misalignment of expectations arises from the fact that technology has disconnected work from its physical and temporal dimensions, the physical and temporal dimensions that have characterised work for numberless generations until recently. That, of course, provides wonderful opportunities for many employees, 
but it has also brought with it an erosion, some would say a, a destruction, of the sharp distinction between work time and not work time that for so long has been characteristic of work. Of course, that distinction is now, for practical purposes, gone for so many workers. Can you bring this to life for us? The university sector is one in which the right to disconnect has become uh, an issue because it is presently the subject of bargaining between the NTU, the union that represents many university academics, and lots of universities around Australia. If I wanted to speak with a, a tutor or a lecturer, if I had a question, a problem, I might be able to get a few words in before a lecture. I would have opportunities to speak with them during tutorials, and I remember that there were advertised times when tutors would be available in their rooms. I could go along, knock on the door, and speak with them. Now, of course, that physical dimension has disappeared from the relationship between academics and their students. Now, on the student side, of course, what uh, that means is that they can pose questions to their tutors and lecturers essentially whenever they like, whenever they feel that they wish to post a, a question, a query. On the other side, academics increasingly not in tenured positions, working under contracts that require periodic renewal, they feel pressure to be available to answer those queries and to do so whenever they come in and to do so promptly. There's a great pressure that academics feel to be available, not to disconnect, to answer queries from their students as they come in. That, that it is it is said, has created a work health and safety hazard. That, and that has led that union to press for the right to log off out of hours to be included in enterprise agreements. So, Ian, are you actually advocating for the right to disconnect to become law across the board? I'm more a proponent of dealing with the issue uh, working from the bottom up rather than the top down. I'm certainly a proponent of dealing with the issue, of recognising that it is an issue, that it will increasingly be an issue, and stepping forward, both parties stepping forward, talking about it and addressing the issue, aligning their expectations. What do you think will happen in Australia with right to disconnect laws? There will be some form of regulation dealing with the right to disconnect. The issue is here and it is, that is here in Australia, and it is a growing issue. It's an issue that won't go away. We're likely to see it most prominently, I think, in the enterprise agreement stream. Enterprise agreements are agreements uh, typically made between in particular employers and their employees. They're supposed to provide a, a mechanism to create binding agreements that relate to the circumstances of particular workplaces, and that makes them peculiarly well-suited to dealing with this issue. And that's, I think, where we're going to see the issue quickly become prominent in this country. And culturally and historically, why is this important in Australia? Work will never be the same again. What we have seen over the last 
two and a half, three years since the beginning of the pandemic is the most profound revolution in the world of work that we have seen since the Industrial Revolution. In our society, in many societies, but particularly in ours, there is a deep-seated belief in the sanctity of not working time. That goes back a very long way. The eight-hour working day movement, eight hours to work, eight hours to play, eight hours to sleep, (laughs) that was a movement that started in Australia as long ago as 1856. The first big eight-hour working day march was in Melbourne, held in Melbourne in 1856. It was one of the first mass labour movements in the world. And, of course, it led, ultimately, to the introduction of legislated eight-hour working days in every state in Australia, and that idea spread over the common law world. And we still celebrate that today in the Labor Days that that are celebrated in each state and territory in this country. What we're talking about now when we're talking about the right to disconnect reaches right back to the ideas that began as long ago in this country, as long ago as 1856. The idea that employees should have a right not to work. And that is such an important element in our, really in the fabric of Australian society now. Alongside the movement around the right to disconnect is the global research and discussion around building trust in the workplace. But what is the interplay between these concepts, if anything at all? The flexibility to personalise your workflow relies on trust. Trust that you'll get the job done well and on time, wherever you are and whatever times of the day your brain works best. Yeah, Dr. John Molyneux. Uh, Yes, I'm a course director of human resource management, a master's program at Deakin University. Why is trust important in the workplace, particularly now? You know, there's there's kind of two aspects of trust that that we talk about in uh, research, in organisational behaviour. Effective trust is relational, it's an emotional thing, whereas outcome trust or cognitive trust are the things that we expect from each other at work. And it's really about those two things being both present for a team or individual relationships to be really fully effective in the workplace. So I think the most important thing is that most people really only get to that um, cognitive base, you know, the, the it's task focus, really. So, for example, would be um, I give you a task and uh, I trust you to do it. <laughs> we agree what parameters it is and the outcomes and the date that it's due and I trust you to do it. So that would be the cognitive-based trust. And, and most teams work really effectively on just that basis. But if you have a more effective emotional trust, it's really relational. You're actually trusting the person to, you have concern for their welfare. You're building a relationship with them over the long term. And, you know, it's a place where you really want to work because you have that kind of harmony and synergy with people. Uh, and that's that's becomes really highly productive. Why is it important to have both? Why can't I just trust that you'll do that task? Well, you can, but 
if you want a person to stay with you in the long term, this is really the, the critical factor. So you, you develop that long-term trust through the emotional trust. What is the relationship, John, between the right to disconnect mm-hmm. and the role of trust, particularly in a hybrid, flexible work environment? I don't agree it should be a right. Um, I think, you know... Why? It, because in this situation where you've got in full employment, you have the choice as an employee whether you want to work in a particular organisation. Look, the best organisations are going to provide this anyway because they know how people work. What about the powerless or the less powerful employees? Most people who have uh, high-level skills have options. Uh, But for people who are not, yeah, there needs to be some protections. I definitely agree with that. It's better that that be on the employer to provide some forms of flexibility than to have individual rights. What are some of the challenges when it comes to relying on the trust and respect between employers and employees? A lot of people, yeah, they just need a bit of education, a bit of encouragement, a bit of understanding, some workshops maybe, anything that can help them understand the better ways to work and uh, being a better employer. What if um, people are listening, John, and they're like, John, you're dreaming because there's all these things that you want me to do, but I don't have time for that. Isn't it my expectation that my workers would just come in and do the work? Yeah, I totally understand that. (laughs) And that transactional relationship exists. And it's not surprising and it's going to happen. When employers understand that employees have ideas as well, they can actually make a big difference. So, you know, there's plenty of history in this that organisations really turned around. And I think that there's a recognition in a movement that people are human and that to get humans to actually do their best work is to create an environment where there are these extra elements and Mm. one of those crucial elements is now trust and has always been. Totally, trust. And, it, you know, it's really, it's beyond, beyond that. It's totally involved in terms of involvement as well. If you trust someone, you're involving them in what they're doing. You give them a piece of work and knowing that it's going to be done well because you have that relationship. What do you think about including a right to disconnect in employment agreements? I think for most organisations, uh, they, they don't need it. Um, Why? Because of that a strong sense of I have some power, I have the power to stay or go and if the work environment is not good for me, then I will take my capability elsewhere, maybe to a competitor. Am I hearing from you that in fact this right to disconnect might actually interfere with or actually eradicate the building of and maintaining of trust. That's what I'm worried about. (laughs) So it's difficult because you know there's some unscrupulous employers there, like what we've seen with um, Twitter recently, (laughs) in fact, and before that with um, Tesla. Yeah, you want to have cooperation. You want to build that within your workplace. A sense of cooperation then is difficult to manage when uh, you've got entitlements and people saying, well, I just, it's, I'm tired to it, so you got to give it to me. And so there's no building of that relationship and trust and so on. So 
Can you have a right to flexible hybrid work with a right to disconnect? Or are they at odds? And are they mutually exclusive? Let's hear more from Barrister Ian Neal, SC. So Ian, how does the right to disconnect then sit with hybrid flexible work? For example, the day is eight hours on, you know, conference calls, then followed by eight hours actually doing the work and eight hours then on my social media. (laughs) A different form of eight hour day. (laughs) When I spoke with my 20 year old son about the right to disconnect the other day, he looked at me bemused. He seemed to think that the idea that you not be on your mobile phone was some form of punishment rather rather than a human right. Hybrid working models mean that place becomes essentially irrelevant and time becomes a more diffuse and mutable concept, whereby, for example, you might no longer be thinking about an eight-hour block of work, but you might be thinking about eight hours' work distributed over a longer period. And, of course, that suits many employees, That suits many workers to be able to, for example, stop work in the early afternoon, go and pick their children up from school, spend time with their families and then resume work late at night. All in circumstances where once upon a time, that was, and not that long ago, that was much less possible because work required somebody to leave their home, travel to their employer's place of work and be there to perform the work. In a way, haven't we fought for flexibility? Isn't that the right that we appreciate at the moment? Uh, There's a growing sense that that is so. And I would be encouraging employers and employees who are thinking about the right to disconnect not to think about it as being antithetical to the kind of hybrid working flexibility that we've been talking about, the sorts of flexibility that many employees find attractive. To be clear, in saying that formalising a right to disconnect can still be compatible with flexible hybrid working models, but it can be complicated. You might, when you're working at home, you, you might decide for yourself, well, I'm going to turn my computer off and disconnect, pick a time, six o'clock every evening. Now, the task, I think, is to align that with the expectations of the one's employer or the person who's, for whom you are working. Do they expect that you will be available after 6pm? If you are not, are you disappointing their expectation or creating problems for them because they've designed their systems of work around the possibility that you'll be available after 6pm? If they have designed their systems of work around that possibility, then at what time after 6pm should they reasonably expect that you will no longer be available? Can they, could they reasonably expect that you'll be available to answer phone calls that come in at midnight? Most people would say no, but dig a little deeper and ask yourself, why is that so? So the, the real task is just at bottom to recognise the existence of the issue, and to ensure that expectations on both sides are aligned, that both sides have the same expectations about when people will and will not be available for work, when it is and is not reasonable. Ian, what are the challenges for establishing or relying on trust in the workplace? 
there's no magic bullet to, to trust. When work had a, a necessary temporal and physical dimension, when work was done at an employer's place of work in the times stipulated and organised by the employer, then it was easy, relatively easy, for employers to control the way in which work was performed. In, in fact, going right back, if you go right back to the Industrial Revolution, one can see that control quickly became an essential, was quickly recognised to, to be such an essential element of the performance of work that it came to be, at law, emblematic of the existence of an employment relationship. If you go right back to the Industrial Revolution, what happened there was that for the very first time in uh, human history, economic history, it became necessary to organise large numbers of people to gather together at the same place at the same time to perform tasks that were integrated one with the other and to do so not just for particular projects like building the pyramids but to do so day after day, month after month, year after year. And how do you do that? How do you organise people to be at the same place at the same time and to work together in an organised and, and coherent way? You exercise control over the way they perform their work. And so that became, in, in our legal system since that time, a marker of employment, a necessary element of every employment relationship. How do employers control the way, exercise their legal rights to control the way in which employees are working? When much of that work, in the case of many employees and increasingly more employees, is being performed not under the employer's eye and not in locations that the employer has any right to control, locations like the employee's home. That's a, a very large issue in the way in which work is looked at, organised and regulated that our legal system has not yet really begun to grapple with. What is your message to employers, Ian? Recognise the issue. Don't bury your head in the sand. Step forward. Meet the issue head on. Talk to your employees. Align your expectations with theirs. Have a clear set of expectations. And you'll notice that I repeatedly use the word expectations rather than rules, because I'm not sure that this is an area where prescriptive rules work very well. They are inimical to the kind of flexibility that we talked about, flexibility that many employees have come to value. And Ian, if we don't move that way, what could happen? Cautionary tale. Cautionary tale. When, when change is going to come... It will come either from below or from above. What I've been advocating is change from below. If change does not come from below, it will ultimately come from above. It will ultimately be imposed. And that kind of imposition is antithetical to flexibility, is antithetical to a recognition of the individual circumstances of particular employees. So the cautionary tale is for employers and employees alike. If, one, if, if you don't meet this problem, talk about it. Align your expectations. There is a grave risk that some 
prescriptive rules will be imposed from above that suit no one or suit no one well. The one thing that won't happen is no change. And just to clarify, so below is organisations and industries and above is the law in your example? Correct. Thanks so much, Ian. A pleasure. We made this episode on the lands of the Gadigal and Wiradjuri people. This Working Life is produced by Sarah Allerley. She's definitely a morning person. She can roll out of bed at 5am and sit straight down at her computer to do some of her best work in the day. And snap, I'm the same. So don't try and call us at 4pm. I'm Lisa Leong. Until next time, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.